what I'm about to say is probably going to come as a shock to most of you. But uh, in spite of, you know, this gangly figure in front of you, um, when I was a uh, teenager and such, I was never particularly good with the ladies. So uh, um, just never had a lot of girlfriends. And when I did have a girlfriend, uh, that would probably last. Actually, I think the extent of it was two months. And, uh, and so I, I just never was very good with it. As a matter of fact, this one girl one time told a good friend of mine in college, he said, she, or she said, um, she said, I would consider dating Andrew if he didn't wear so much flannel. And uh, <laughs> so I thought, well, I'm probably not interested in dating you if you're my flannel wearing is the big thing that's going to turn you away, but that's just where I was. But as a, t- as a college student, with this sort of being the case, not having a lot of girlfriends, I don't mean to be self-deprecating here or anything, but I used to sit in my bed as a college student, and I would read this book. It was called Journeys of a Madman. It was about Clayton King, and Clayton King was, is an evangelist in the area, goes around and does a lot uh, these days, but at that time, he was not as well known as he is today. Some of you may know who he is. And... Um, he was very instrumental in my coming to faith. He was a, a, he was a madman. I mean, it was really a good title for his book. He'd been all over the place. He'd been to India doing missions work. He'd been to Russia. There's a story about him running from the KGB at one point in, uh, in that book. Uh, but one of the stories in that book uh, was how he met his wife, Shari. And he talks about the, the first time that they met and when they started dating and then when he asked her to marry him and then when they finally did get married. And as a college student, I'm even slightly embarrassed even to say this, I would read that story over and over and over and over again. I would sit up as a college student in my bed, and I would just go back to the Clayton and Shari story, and I would just read it because I wanted that uh, as a young man, and I didn't think that I was ever going to have it. I didn't think that I was ever going to get married. Um, I honestly thought that I was going to live the rest of my life single. I didn't know that there was going to be this flannel-loving young woman who I was going to meet two years later named Danielle, sitting over here to my left in this red uh, shirt thing. I don't know what you call it. <laughs> two years later or so, um, I would graduate from college. I'd come back to Marion, and I was started, started working at Greenlee Baptist Church, and Danielle was, was there working with the youth with me. And... Uh, our, as a matter of fact, one of our old youth is here also, Ryan Henderson, and uh, our affections for each other began to mount. N- neither of us knew this about the other person. You know how that goes. She supposedly is dropping all of these hints that she likes me, according to her. I never saw a single one of them. I thought that she was uh, completely out of my league. She'd never consider me at all. And finally, the tension began to mount so much that I couldn't contain it anymore. I was going to ask her out or I was going to bust. I was beginning to honestly lose sleep over the way I felt about her. We were working together on River Blast, which we used to do in this county. Grace used to do some of that also. And we were working together on it over at Tom Johnson's Camping Center. It was uh, every night we were doing this. And, uh, and I was just, I was not sleeping. And she began to say, she said, Andrew, you, you look horrible. What in the world's the matter with you? And I said, I'm just not sleeping very well. And the, the honest fact was, I was laying in bed, and my mind was just on Danielle the whole time, like, i got to ask this girl out. So finally, I decide that I'm going to. And I go to East Junior High, where her mom was working at the time, and I sit down, and I talk to her mom. 
And her mom gives me the, you know, what for speech that I need to not break, you know, all this sort of stuff. She's going to guard her daughter. And so she finally gives me her blessing. And so, yes, I'm going to go ask her out. Sunday comes, and I go to Danielle, and I say, I want to talk to you after church tonight. And uh, she says, okay. And um, so after church, we do our thing at the church. <clears throat> and she runs home right quick before we meet. And uh, her mom almost rats me out at this point. She says, uh, Danielle's getting ready to leave. She says, where are you going? And she says, I'm going to go meet, meet Andrew. We're going to go, we're talking about something. And she said, oh, don't you want to brush your hair or something like that? <laughs> and Danielle says, it's just Andrew and leaves. And um, in order to understand this story, you have to understand that I am a diehard romantic, okay? So we're going to meet at Wendy's, and, um, <laughs> and we're gonna, uh, I'm going to ask her out. But we get to Wendy's, and like 20 people from Greenlee Church is there. And so I was just like, we're not going to eat at Wendy's. Let's, let's go to McDonald's. And so we go to McDonald's. I, uh, uh, in my defense, I don't think Fats was in Marion at that time. And if anybody proof checks me, please don't let me know that Fats was actually here when I asked her out because that would be pretty bad. Anyway, um, so we go to McDonald's. And again, I am a romantic, so I didn't bring any money. So she, brought me, she bought me a coffee and herself a cookie. And uh, we sit down and we begin to talk. And she says, what do you want to talk to me about? Now, I think I'm known, uh, most of you know me for my simplicity and my brevity. And so I uh, begin this long soliloquy into my affections and my emotions and what I think and how I've been feeling and all I've been doing and this sort of stuff, you know. And I think I'm crystal clear on this whole point. And afterwards, she looks at me and she says, honestly what are you asking me? <laughs> and I said, I'm asking you to be my girlfriend. And she does this. This sort of thing right here. And I felt like, oh no, my worst nightmare. I'm going to crawl under this desk and stay here for the rest of my life. And finally she says, yeah, I'll be your girlfriend. And then 10 months later, we were married. And that's our story. Um, and I tell you this, I am glad to say that that's just the beginning of our story. We have honestly had a spectacular marriage. Daniel Hyatt Walker, it is a privilege to be your husband. I love you with all my heart. Um, we have had arguments, just like everybody has arguments, but I can say with all sincerity that there has never been a season of bitterness uh, or a season of strife thus far. And we're six and a half years in. I know that there's a long way to go. Um, and I know that there's difficult things that will come. But I know also, you know, that the reality is that many of us sit in this auditorium right now, and we have a similar story. There was a time when we met our spouse, and those affections flew high, and we were Twitter-pated and uh, so excited to be with them, and those things began to fade as time went on, and perhaps your marriage is, is not at the level it once was. And that's what I want to look at this morning. What does God mean for marriage to be? What is his design for it? We come to marriage this morning. I want to be sort of like a government official looks at $100 bills or $50 bills. When they look for being able to check between counterfeits, they don't study the counterfeits. They study the real deal. Let's look at a $100 bill the way it's supposed to be. We'll compare the others to the $100 bill. And uh, by 
knowing what a $100 bill is, everything about that $100 bill, they are able to very well check and find where the counterfeits are. We're going to look at the $100 bill this morning. God's design for marriage as laid out in Genesis chapter 2. But before we get to God's design for marriage, I do want to say one thing to singles this morning. Because I know that this service, this service in particular, has a lot of single people in it. And I know exactly what you're thinking. Some of you are sitting in that bed in college reading Journeys of a Madman, just like I was. And you're like, I'm never going to get married. And the last thing that I want to hear is a sermon series, let alone one sermon, but a series on marriage. So why should you listen to this? Why is this important for you? First of all, it's important for you single people because some of you will be married one day. And you need to begin to think about these things and apply them in your life so that you can be the type of husband or the type of wife that God's called you to be. The second reason you need to listen to this is because marriage is, at its core, a relationship. And you have dozens of relationships in your life. And the, the principles that you can learn by what's going to be laid out in the weeks to come can be applied across the board. But here's a third reason and an even more important reason. God has gifted his church with married people. There's no doubt about that. But he's also gifted his church with single people. We need both. Married people need you to look at the $100 bill this morning and to call us out when we're being counterfeit. All right? We need that from you. I know that you get this impression from the scriptures, like singleness is a gift. That's not what it feels like. Every gift of God has its downside. There's no doubt about that. The downside to marriage is that our sin and our selfishness messes it up. And it becomes, there's, there's tension and there's conflict that emerges in it. Marriage, you'll hear people say, is work. But it's good work. What's the downside to singleness? You know it. It's loneliness. It's loneliness. That's what you experience. And um, I'm here to tell you that that's a legitimate emotion to have. We're going to see in just a second that that's the emotion that Adam discovered in himself before the fall ever happened. He experienced loneliness. But the giftedness in singleness is this. First of all, it's not a deficient state for someone to be single. Jesus himself was single, and he was a complete and perfect human being. The church's greatest theologian, Paul the Apostle, was single. God can use you as a single person in ways that a married person cannot be used. You're free to be completely at God's disposal. That doesn't change the fact that the loneliness you feel is real, and I recognize that. And so with that being said to singles, I do want to look at the $100 bill. So let's look at it. Genesis chapter 2. And we'll read our passage for us, verses 18 and following. Uh, not the whole passage, just the beginning here. What is it that marriage is designed for? What is the $100 bill? Here it is. Marriage is designed to be a lifelong, authentic companionship. Lifelong, authentic companionship. That's what we're going to break down from this passage this morning. The first thing we're going to see is the companionship component. Verse 18 and following. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. Let's stop there for a second. Actually, let's keep on reading. Um, I will make him a helper fit for him. 
now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And when, whatever he, the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, or the beasts of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. What do we learn from this passage? This is a very unique passage in the Old Testament. Here's what happens, okay? Genesis chapter 1, God's creating all sort of things. And he says, uh, God created the expanse above and the water below, and it was good. And God created the land, and it was good. And God created the animals, and they were good. And God created the fish, and it was good. And then for the first time, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, God looks over his good creation, and for the very first time, he says, it is not good. It is not good that man should not have a helper suitable for him. And so he begins to instruct Adam because you have to understand Adam is not going to reach this conclusion on his own. It is not Adam who looks at his condition and says it is not good. Adam is completely content where he is. He is in paradise. He has per the fall has not happened. Genesis chapter 3 has not happened. He is in perfect harmony with creation, the animals, and with his God above. He is in a face-to-face -face fellowship with God. He needs nothing. But God sees something that he needs, and that is he needs a suitable helper. So God brings the animal kingdom before Adam. And Adam begins to name these creatures. And he is not like a caveman just making ooga-booga sounds and tuk-tuk and this sort of stuff, like Ringo Starr in the movie Caveman, if anybody's ever seen that. Uh, he is... You've got to think this guy is the pinnacle of God's creation. He's got a mind like Aristotle. This is like a PhD in biology, classifying and labeling and, and, and naming these animals according to, their, according to their character traits and what's unique about them. So he's studying these animals. And one thing becomes quite clear to Adam. All of these animals have a counterpart, but for him, there's not a helper suitable. What's this suitable thing? What is this referring to? Because we have a relationship with the animal kingdom, don't we? We experience a fellowship with some of our animals. Some of us have cats. Some of us have dogs. I remember when I was a college student, I used to have a dog named Chester. And I loved that dog so much. He was the stupidest animal I've ever met in my life. So naturally, we really got along quite well. And, uh, and so Chester was... I mean, he thought the sun rose and set on me. And so he wanted to be near me so much that that dog, we left the, the, uh, the dog food in the kitchen, and we'd sit in the living room, and Chester would go into the kitchen, and he'd get his mouth chock full as as much food as he could, and he'd come into the living room, and he'd blah, right all over the floor, and then he'd just sit and eat it off the floor because he wanted to be next to us. That was nasty and gross, but I mean, I guess kind of endearing, you know. Um, that was my dog. The, the, Chester was loyal to me, but he was not loyal to my other roommates. Uh, if we disciplined Chester, because he was always doing something wrong, he would poop on my roommates' beds. <laughs> so he was really a great dog, you know, everything you can dream of. But the fact of the matter is, I would... I'm pretty glad I married Danielle instead of my pooping on a bed dog. I'm so glad that I had a suitable helper in Danielle. See, the dog or the animal kingdom isn't suitable because they lack a particular quality, the image of God. But Danielle, or Joy for Earl, 
or Jenny for James, or Wendy for Jerry, or insert your names, you have a suitable helper, one who's designed man for woman. This is unique. This is good. This is what God wants. This whole thing, helper, is what is integral to this companionship component that we're looking at here. And that little component, helper, can be offensive to some women in a modern age. So I want to look at that a second. What is this helper thing? What does this even mean? Some people can think that this is an offense. You know, to be a helper is demeaning to a woman, but it's not. It's, in fact, exalting to women. Because God himself calls himself our helper throughout the scriptures. To be a helper does not demean the helper If anyone is demeaned, it's the one who needs helped. It's that person who is not sufficient apart from this counterpart. Now, that's not to say that singles are insufficient in and of yourself. Remember, Jesus, single till the day he died, and completely perfect and holy, exactly the way a man was supposed to be. God gifts us with singles for a time, and sometimes for a a lifetime. But God's vision in Genesis 2, not good for man to be alone, helper suitable for him, I'll provide him a female counterpart. And so he does this, creates her especially for him. He'll have to enter into special creation to provide this for him. So what is this helper thing that's so integral to companionship? I think it's the Bubba Gump mentality. If you remember Forrest Gump, Bubba told him, I'm going to sleep with my back against yours so that we don't sleep with our faces in the mud. That's what companionship is all about. You need someone in this life to journey with you on your road to glory because this is a dangerous road. Bubba Gump was in, Bubba and Forrest Gump were in Vietnam with uh, machine gun fire all over the place. We are in America with uh, people dying and going to hell all around us. Temptations galore and we need someone who is there spurring us on to holiness, a companion, a helper, suitable to us. God has given us wives. God has given us husbands. The problem is when we enter into marriage, we often lose this sort of companionship, friendship component later on. On our best behavior when we're dating, go into the honeymoon and we get comfortable and uh, our wife serves us and we lay back and watch a football game or whatever it is, you know, and that's not how God designed it. This friendship, this companionship, it begins to separate. You begin to become more like roommates than you are lovers. Bitterness begins to set in. And so how do we address this when it has already set into our lives? I think it's the Philippians 2 mentality that you insert here. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. And what is this attitude two verses earlier? Consider others as more important than yourselves. I see individuals in this room that I do premarital counseling with, and I tell every single one of them this. If you have a verse to put over your marriage, one verse and only one verse, let it be that one. Consider one another as more important than yourself. If this is your attitude, if this is your, and and remember this, you can only change yourself, but you can influence your spouse. You can influence them tremendously if you consider them as more important than yourself. And if both of you are doing that, does that sound like a pretty good relationship? Pretty awesome relationship. That's the way God designed it. But he didn't only design it for companionship. He designed it to be lifelong. That's the next thing we see here. Let's look at that. 
Where do we see that? Beginning in verse 22, 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of the ribs and closed it up, up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What do we see here? In our modern culture, we have a category for marriage, which we put under the category contract. That is not a biblical model for marriage. That is a modern 20th century legal modern, uh, model, for, uh, model for marriage. And a contract in our culture can be renegotiated, right? And so marriage is anything but lifelong in our culture. It's brief. Sometimes we see them taking place for a year, even months, and then they're over with. But God designed it to be lifelong, and we see that here, not in a contractual sense, but in the Old Testament, a covenantal sense. So what do I mean by a covenant? A covenant was something that was entered into on a, on a, on a lifelong basis. Break it down here, and we can see how it, it plays out. Three things quickly. First thing that happens is that a covenant in the Old Testament is cut. You cut a covenant if you're going to enter into one. Because cutting, uh, they would cut animals in two, and the blood would come between the animals, and the people would pass between those. It was a way of symbolically saying that the way that these animals have been cut and their blood has been sh uh, shed, if I break this covenant, let me be like these animals. Let me die. Actually, this covenant will not end until death do us part type of thing. So where do we see cutting taking place here? Adam has his side cut. Blood is spilt. This is a way of saying till death do us part. Where do we see this in a modern marriage? Not to be crass or gross with this, but this happens on the wedding night when blood is spilt. And this blood is a ratification of this covenant saying what has been proclaimed in a vow already earlier that day, till death do us part. Nothing will dissolve this marriage except for one of us go and be in, our pre in the presence of our Lord and Savior forever. That alone will dissolve this marriage. But what's the next thing, this covenant component of marriage plays out here? Adam makes vows, just like we do when we have a marriage ceremony. Adam says, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she is taken out of man. He is proclaiming over this female. He is saying, You and me are one. We do the same thing in our marriages today. Our language is different. We say, do you such and such take this woman to be your wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, till death do you part? I do. We make a vow. And Jesus' assessment of such a vow is this. Not what the priest or the preacher has joined together, not what the man and woman has joined together, not what the state has joined together, but what God has joined together, let no man separate. It is a covenant. It is forever. But then the third component, Adam names his wife. She shall be called woman. We do the same thing today. See, a covenant in the Old Testament often had a naming component to it. Abram enters into a covenant with God, and his name is changed to Abraham. Jacob enters into a covenant with God, and his name is changed to Isaac. The woman enters into a marital covenant with Adam, and he names her at this point, as Bill Cosby said, Whoa, man! <laughs> you know, looking at her, she must have been spectacular, you know? 
but woman. He names her. We do the same thing. The woman tends to take, traditionally, the husband's last name. The reason we do this is because we are accessing this covenant component of marriage. Way back in our history, we no longer think about it this way, but this is the reality going on. The two become one. They enter into a new authority structure. The, the result of this, as Adam says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. No longer are you in this old covenant with your father and your mother. You have completely, not severed emotionally, but severed authoritatively your connection with this old authority structure, your parents, and you've entered into a new home. You're with your husband. You're with your wife. You are a unit. You are individual. You are autonomous from them. And so you become each other's emotional support. The oneness is here. Now, problems enter into marriages all the time because this severance never takes place. And so parents meddle in their kids' marriages or kids go back to their parents for their emotional support when God's design is husband, wife, one flesh, keep it there. My mom gave me and Danielle good advice when we first got married. She said, if you ever fight and you're going to fight, she said, do not tell me about it. And so I give you the same advice. She said, because the two of you will move on from it, but I'll hang on to it, and I'll be bitter. She said, leave it between the two of you. That's where it's supposed to take place. Handle your issues there. This lifelong component has fallen so short in our culture, hasn't it? Divorce rates skyrocket these days. Some of us in this room have suffered the pains of divorce, and I know that even me talking about it this morning is like a stitch in your side. And it may be your fault, maybe you did something wrong in the marriage, maybe it's their fault, however it is, the reality is the same, you're divorced, you're single, and you experience this loneliness. Let me remind you the same thing I told singles at the beginning. Even if it's a result of sin, and divorce is always the result of sin on one party or both parties' uh, cases, your singleness right now is a gift from God and can be used in mighty ways. And there's grace there also, which we will see at the end, that God provides for such situations, for all situations. But this lifelong component, we struggle with it in our modern culture, but two generations ago doesn't seem to have quite the problem with it, right? We look at our grandparents, at least my grandparents, some of your parents' generation, and it's not, some of you may be in this room, it's nothing to see marriages that have lasted 50 or 60 years they, they may have had some sort of a, uh, a commitment level that maybe we don't have, or maybe they, they, they regarded vows more uh, to a greater extent than we do. But for whatever reason, they seem to have a lot more uh, long-term marriages back in those days. And these days, it's just not the case. Whatever the reason, we've changed in this regard. But there is one thing, the last thing, that I think our grandparents often missed. I saw it in my grandparents. And it's this last component lifelong, authentic companionship. What's this authenticity that I'm talking about? We find it in the last verse of our chapter this morning, verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. What does this mean? Naturally, they were physically naked. We know that. Later, they will try to clothe themselves once they have sinned and have, have, have entered into this selfish sort of experience that they find themselves but what is this nakedness really talking about? It's talking about the very thing that every person in this room, every person in the universe, hungers and thirsts for. 
intimacy. And by that I mean this. Authenticity, genuineness, intimacy, or nakedness. Emotional nakedness. Intellectual nakedness. Spiritual nakedness. Nakedness with your struggles. The real you. The problem with us in our world today is that we don't have, in, in, in the world everywhere, the world throughout history, we've all been hurt so many times by so many people that we, we try to, we put up barriers. And so somebody can come this, this close to me and they can know this part of me, whatever's right here, but I don't want them to know this, this person. If they could just stay right here, then I'm comfortable and I don't get rejected. And uh, I got this mask on and we can get along okay. That's the nature of so many relationships. It's just the fallen world in which we live. Marriage, by God's design, the $100 bill, is supposed to be that one sanctuary in this world where we go, where we can be ourselves. We can be exactly the way we are. I'll rat us out. It's nothing to come to, well, you, you wouldn't experience it if you came to our house because we'd put the guards up. But, but um, when Danielle and I are home by ourselves, we speak with British accents almost all the time. So we're goofy, okay? You knew this. I'm just going ahead and putting it out there. This is the way we like to just have fun with each other. I'm never going to do that. I'm not going to do it right now. I'm never going to do that in front of other people. I'm not going to walk around this church with a British accent. But when I go home, I'm going to talk that way with my wife because we think it's fun and we have our way of doing things. And I'm authentic. I'm me when I'm with my wife. That's the way God designed this to be. But the problem is, don't we, so much distance begins to emerge because we begin to put up invisible walls in front of us because of little things that have happened and we've not been honest and we've not been truthful with the way we felt about things. And so this separation happens. So, so where does grace enter into this? How do we remedy such marriages? How do we go to the $100 bill and actually behave that way? Well, grace enters in at this point because one may be the loneliest number, uh, as Three Dog Night once said, and uh, as they go on to say, two can be as bad as one. But here's the thing. There's a third that enters into all of our Christian relationships, isn't there? Jesus Christ, who is our true husband, the one who loves us not lifelong, but eternally. The one who loves us absolutely authentically, and the one who is our true companion. You see, the Bible is so cool that it does this. It begins and it ends with a marriage ceremony. Genesis chapter 2, man and woman, Adam and Eve, they have their marriage. Revelation chapter 19 and following, the marriage supper of the Lamb. When Jesus finally receives his bride, those that he purchased by his blood... Where was the blood spilt? At the cross. That's the covenant that we talked about. It's interesting the language that's given there. He'll give us a new name. He'll rename us. That is the reality. That is the substance. Jesus says, or the book of Hebrews says, this companionship said of Jesus, he will never leave you nor forsake you. He will always be there for you, no matter what. So single people, I know that this is an over-spiritualization in some ways, but not altogether. 
This authentic companionship is most definitely found in Jesus Christ, if you are his. But married people too, your marriage is just pointing to the reality of an eternal marriage with Christ, union with him, like a one flesh union even. The authenticity, the book of Hebrews says this, all things are open and laid bare before him with whom we have, we have to do. That means this. That means that every single one of you in here with all of your secrets and all of your dirt is 100% exposed before the Lord. There is nothing he does not know about you. He is present with you when you sin, and he loves you still the same. He accepts you, and he places his affections on you. He is your true husband. He is the true place where we see this authentic companionship. And then the promise we've already mentioned. Here, when we get a marriage that's even close to right, we point to it, but our marriages here end. One day, every single one of us who are here married, or every single one of us, period, there will be a day where one of us sits next to a bed and there our spouse lay. And it will be hours, maybe minutes, before they pass into eternity. And when that day comes, may it be the case that we look at ourselves and we say, honey, we've had some hard times, but we've made it. We made it this far. We've had the lifelong companionship that God had in store for us. And then she looks up at you and she smiles, or he looks up at you and he smiles. He breathes his last and he fades into eternity. And the marriage is finished. And then one day you will die. And you will both stand side by side together forever in glory, not as a husband and a wife, because it was just a shadow of the real relationship. As a brother and a sister in Christ. Marriage is designed for you for lifelong, authentic companionship so that you can have one person on earth to join this journey with you all the way to heaven where your true relationship will be unveiled. A brother and sister in Christ united to their Savior who died for their sins. That's why you stick this thing out. Because if you don't, then you're misspeaking about what Christ has done for us. But if you do, you're not, not going to do it perfectly. But you're telling the world, by the reality of your marriage, you're telling the world, you're saying, this is what Christ has done for us. Forever united to him. Divorced people, I know that this is a burden to hear. I know it's a struggle. The grace is this. Your marriage was a shadow of the reality. If you are united to Christ, fully accepted by him, all sin washed away and you are brought into that relationship and he has good things in store for you. Single people, he has good things in store for you. Married people, he has good things in store for you. But the greatest thing he has in store for you is salvation forever in his presence. And that is our goal. That's our trajectory. That's our journey. We'll close in prayer. I'll ask Dave and the praise team to come forward. And uh, we'll have a time of invitation and we'll, we'll be dismissed. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. It is mighty. It is powerful, Lord.
is special, Father. It's um, amazing how it speaks into our, our world today. In this case, probably 6,000, 7,000, 8,000 years after this particular passage was even, ri- even written. It's completely relevant, Lord. Lord, we all, every single one of us, single or married, we want what you have in store for us. That's the good. Lifelong, authentic companionship. And we know that we can have that in earthly relationships that are not marital. We can have it in friendships. But the pinnacle place is in a marriage relationship. And so I want to pray for this congregation, Father, right now. I want to pray, Father, that where marriages are struggling, that you would put a a jolt into those now, Lord, that would just, husbands would go home and they would start a conversation with their wives that has great consequences. Um, I pray, Father, for the upcoming sermons in this series, that they would be able to speak into situations to provide healing and help. I pray for single people, Lord, who, who desire to be married more than anything. Lord, that you would help them, Lord, to wait on the good as you will bring it, to be useful to you in the gift of their singleness, but also I pray that you would provide for them a spouse. For married people, Help us to be the $100 bill pointing to Jesus, the reality, the substance, the true marriage that we have because he died for us. Pray for this time of invitation that you do in it what you desire to do in all of our hearts and lives, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.